you know, somebody who's learning the glass, one of the biggest things is just controlling the movement of the binoculars. I would say that for me personally, when I became, you know, once I became hyper anal about, you know, controlling the movement of my, my binoculars, either with a tripod or, you know, just always framing, you know, leaning against something like if I'm going to glass out of a truck, even if I stop for just a minute, unless, unless if I'm glassing like, a you know, just looking at something 150 yards off the road, like, yeah, I'll leave my truck running. But if I'm looking beyond that, even if it's just for a quick look, like I turn the engine off of my truck. You know what I mean? Because the because the vibration makes it harder for you to see game. These are stories of outdoor adventure and expert advice from folks with calloused hands. I'm James Nash, and this is the Six Ranch Podcast. A hot drink can become cool in two primary ways, through conduction and convection. Conduction occurs when two objects touch each other. Imagine holding a piece of ice. Before long, your fingers are cold and the ice begins to melt. That's conduction. Convection occurs when a gas or liquid moves from being different temperatures. When you heat water over a stove, the warm water moves up and the cool water moves down. That's what you're seeing when water boils, and that's convection. A stainless vacuum bottle prevents conduction from occurring by creating a void between the walls of the bottle, thermos, or cup and the outside air. It prevents convection by keeping all the liquid inside at the same temperature. That's how a Stanley product keeps your cold drink cold and your hot drink hot. And they've been doing it for 110 years. The Six Ranch Podcast is brought to you by Stanley 1913. And you can check out their new and classic line of products at Stanley1913.com. Well, good morning, sir. How you doing? Good, man. How are you? Good. How are your holidays? They were good, man. I uh, actually spent them down here in the Caribbean. I've got a brother who lives down here, so I'm in Puerto Rico. We've had a good time. It's nice to be be warm in the winter for once, you know. How, how about you, James? How about yours? Oh, good, man. It was good. Um, I rolled my truck on Christmas Eve. We had uh, some pretty icy conditions up here. We actually had some some pack ice and some black ice on the road, and then we got freezing rain on top of that. And I slid off the road going like 15 miles an hour and went off a bank and rolled my truck and ended up upside down. And there's a couple interesting lessons from that. Uh, one is that I wear hunting gear all year long. Like I, I never stop doing it because it's the clothes that I own and I'm outside a lot, right? I'm not trying yeah, to sure. like front that I'm wearing camouflage or something while I'm eating biscuits and gravy in town in, in February. Uh, it's just, it's the stuff that I own. Yeah. But what was interesting to me ab- about this whole deal is it, you know, I rolled into the snow um, and the side airbags went off in this, uh, this F-150, which was awesome. Like what cool technology, like that truck turned into like a kid's bouncy gym as soon as the wreck started to happen. And, uh, and I didn't get hurt at all. I had a rifle in the back and, uh, and I, I shot it a few days later, it was still zeroed. Right. So good deal. like this truck really did a good job of protecting me and the stuff that was inside of it. But with those side airbags upside down, um, I would not have been able to get out of the truck if I didn't have a knife to be able to cut through those airbags. So I didn't, I had, you ah. know, my normal, uh, our galley carbon hunting knife around my neck. So I was able to cut out my airbags to get out of the truck. So that was handy. And then I was, I was wearing all my, all my good cryptic hunting gear. So as soon as I got outside in the snow, I'm fine. You know, it's not, not a big deal for me to hang out. And I talked to another guy, um, who had wrecked that same day in Montana and he was not wearing gear and, uh, he got frostbite and he, he wrecked in town. He was just waiting outside and it was too cold and he ended up getting frostbite. So I, I always tell people to to dress for the wreck, you know, when you're, when you're flying places, I like to wear the kind of stuff that I would generally want to have on, um, if the plane crashed, whether that's, especially if it's a small plane, but, uh, yeah, I, I think that it's just smart. And then, 
you know, I had, I had my first aid kit and my deck system. And I always wondered if, if I wrecked a truck, if that decked box would go flying out of the bed and yeah. it did, it did not. So had I needed that, all I needed to do was open the tailgate. And even though we we're upside down, the, the decked box still worked, the drawers still slid out. So I could have gotten to my first aid kit and all my safety stuff there. Uh, so there's a lot of things that I feel, feel pretty good about. Yeah, no, that's, yeah. uh, that's good, man. And I, like what you just said, it's so easy to forget that. Right? I, I think it's so easy to forget that. I think it's because we have all this technology around us all the time. How, how little weaklings us humans are without like our equipment. You know what I mean? <laughs> For so sure. You're, you're, you're driving down and you're, you're, you know, even though it's, negative 20 outside or whatever it was james you're driving in your truck you have no worry that you're you're wearing your pajamas or whatever until you're in a wreck no i'm i i can only imagine man um it doesn't it doesn't take much much unpreparedness to get yourself in pretty big trouble if you're not if you're not thinking about it but man you you know you you said that story james and immediately I felt so bad because I actually, I had, uh, just so your listeners know, I had you on a podcast like a few days back and I didn't even ask you about it. And I had seen it on your Instagram <laughs> and I'm sorry, man. Like that makes me feel, that makes me feel horrible, dude. Cause I remember seeing it on your Instagram and being like, wow, like that, that, you know, I mean, it was, you know, your pictures are pretty epic on there, but the truck just on its flat. And it also looked like you took like a pretty good, like run off of the road. Like it's a pretty good down draw. Right. Dude, that makes me feel like such a, such a boob, man. Not, I didn't even ask you about that. <laughs> oh no, not, not at all. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm perfectly fine. You know, the gear that was inside the truck is, is largely okay. And, and I have insurance. So like what a, what a privileged, I guess, existence I get to live that one, I got to, to drive a truck that took care of me in a wreck. Like that's an incredible privilege in itself sure. and that, you know, that I can afford that and I can afford uh, the, the insurance, even though it's legally required of me, you know, but I, I could do that and, and my insurance is going to take care of me. And, you know, in the next couple of weeks, I'll go truck shopping and I'll get another truck and I'll move on and, and it'll all be fine. And in the meantime, I get the support of like great friends and family. I probably had half a dozen people say, Hey, I'm, I don't have any plans right now. Uh, do you need a truck? Come, come borrow mine. Yeah. Um, like it's, it's just a really well supported existence that I get to live. And, uh, and I'm very grateful for it. Grateful for, for all that infrastructure, whether it's, you know, friends or insurance or, you know, people that I've never met that, you know, designed this vehicle that, uh, yeah, gosh, I mean, if that would have happened in like, the 67 Ford that I, that I grew up with that didn't even have seat belts, would I have died? No, almost definitely not. But, uh, you know, would I have been able to scrap up the, the Fritos that I was taking to a Christmas Eve party and, and make it there a little bit late? Uh, but with Fritos intact, no, certainly not. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, it, it's, it's all good. It's all good. It's, it's easy enough. Um, and I love, yeah. I love stuff like that that happens around the holidays because no matter, like, no matter who you are, I think all of us still believe a little bit in Christmas miracles, right? Yeah, um, yeah. I remember in Afghanistan, I was out on a mission on Christmas day and we'd found an IED and, uh, EOD, the explosive ordnance disposal dudes came down to work on it. And this guy stepped on a secondary IED and it blew up, but they'd buried it too deep. And he went a long ways, 10 yards, 15 yards, something like that, flying through the air, looked bad, looked really bad. The dude landed on his feet, stuck the landing like an Olympic gymnast, <laughs> um, and either the landing or the explosives had broken like one or both of his ankles or some feet or something like that. But he stuck the landing and then immediately calls out over his uh, radio, Merry Christmas. And uh, <laughs> it was, it was amazing. You know, it was a Christmas miracle and the guy's all right. Uh, so I, I, I do love stuff like that and I don't think it probably has anything to do with the calendar date of the year, but, um, we'll take it. We'll take it in any form. Yeah, of course, man. A little, a little luck on your side is never a bad thing, man. What's, uh, 
what's Christmas like in Puerto Rico? Good, man. So uh, I've actually I've done it a I, I've done it a couple times because I've got a brother down here. Um, and man, there's a lot of Christmas spirit up in the states, but Puerto Ricans they're I mean they like Christmas in Puerto Rico is not. You know, I feel like in the States, uh, Christmas is like the 20th of December through like the 1st, right? That's yeah. kind of like, the you know, somewhere in that window. In Puerto Rico, Christmas is like December 10th to like somewhere mid-January. You know what I mean? <laughs> like they, they uh, Christmas spirit's a, a, a big deal. And then, and then they celebrate an additional holiday too, Three Kings. So that kind of comes afterwards. So it's kind of a prolonged uh, celebration here. Um, it's awesome, man. It's weird. Cause I don't want to complain about the weather, you know, James, but there is something weird for me because I've always been in an environment, you know, growing up where Christmas was a winter holiday, right? Yeah. So snow, you know, going out and cutting a tree, all that. Um, to me, that's a big part of a big part of Christmas. So that, you know, a little bit of that, I'm like, oh, I, I kind of, I kind of miss doing that. Like this year, I think this year is the first year of my kid's life that we didn't go cut our own Christmas tree. So that's, that's, you know, one side of it, but uh, at, on the other side of it, it's, it's a great place to celebrate Christmas, man. And, and I think the main thing I, you know, I don't know how, how you do it, but you know, um, trying to be around family during Christmas is, is where it's at, you know? Totally. I totally agree. Um, that's, that's awesome, man. So gosh, this, this isn't uh this isn't all that normal of a subject for me, but how are you spending your time down there? Like, are you surfing? Are you going out and hunting iguanas? Like what, what does a hunting guy do in, in uh, Puerto Rico in the wintertime? Yeah. So you know, it's funny you ask that. Cause I, I get that question a lot and I bet you're like this too, James. Like it doesn't really matter where you're at. You're, you're not going to have, you're not going to have like a lack of things to do. It's more like you get, you, you got to like, you got to figure out how to do them and still get your work done. You know, um, I, uh, one thing I've been trying to do here is I have a bunch of footage from, you know, fall guiding, a bunch of videos I took in the mountains that I'm trying to edit for my, for my YouTube channel. So a lot of what I'm doing is just what I would do anywhere else, man. Just yeah. kind of home office and doing that work, um, you know, trying to get up that learning curve. But so that's part of it. And then, yeah, you know, it's funny because I was actually just a week ago, I was talking to uh, a guy that used to work for me who's still doing a, a bunch of outfitting and the ocean for me, it's like, I'm not, I've, I've been exposed to it a bunch in my life, but it's still like, I guess how I would put it is I can dance with the mountains and I feel comfortable. I know I'm not going to dominate the mountains, but I can do that dance. The ocean, I'm not quite comfortable in yet. So I view it as a challenge, man. Yeah. Um, so I, uh, I would say, you know, I'm very much a, an amateur, um, an amateur at it, but I've been doing a little spear fishing, you know, and then doing the normal beach stuff with the kids, that sort of thing. I I've got some connections, uh, here that are, you know, Puerto Rican folks that are great water guys. So they're kind of introducing me to the ocean. So I'm doing some of that. Um, and I'm going to try, I haven't done any of it yet, but I'm going to try to do maybe a couple a couple of videos on that that are kind of out of the box on, on those adventures. Uh, the iguana thing. Have you ever done the iguana thing, James? No, I haven't. Um, <laughs> you know, we were, we were developing, uh, some air rifle stuff with, with Sig okay. a few years ago. And I was actually at shot show at the Sig range day. And, uh, in the gal that, that was doing the air rifle development, she came up and she's like, Hey, I'm not sure, but would you be interested in doing a, an iguana hunt on Puerto Rico? And I was like, I'm, I'm packed right now. Like, let's, let's go. Yeah, yeah, sure. What are we still doing here? You know, shooting machine guns <laughs> at the range. Like, let's, let's go iguana hunting. Yeah. I've yeah. never got to do it. My, my, my close friend, um, Mike Kimmel, Python cowboy, you know, he makes a lot of his living with oh, that sure. in, in Florida. I would love to, man. That looks great to me. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it's fun. I mean, I've done it a few times. Um, and, uh, and I'm, I, and I'm for sure going to bust out a couple you know, I have a, I have a video from, I think maybe two years ago where I went on one, but it's not great footage. Um, but I'll, I'll bust out a couple, you know, Puerto Rico iguana hunts. They're fun, man. It's, it's, I guess what I would say is like super target rich environment. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, they're, when you get, when you get in the areas where, you know, they're basically, you know, they're a real problem to any of the ag down here and there's like an infestation, 
And it's just like, it's just like the, like Western hunting, right? Where, you know, if, if a guy has been out glassing for mule deer for the last three weeks, he's going to see 20 mule deer before the guy next to him who just started sees it. That's how the right. Puerto Ricans are here, man. The guys who hunt iguanas, like, you know, you go out with them in this, they're just like iguana, iguana, iguana. And it, it takes you a couple hours and your brain gets tuned up. And then it's like, holy crap, man, there's iguanas everywhere. You know, yeah. I mean, it's not unusual to go out and shoot, you know, 50 iguanas in a morning or something like that. Yeah. I think developing that search image is, uh, is really important for, for any kind of hunting. And once, once your brain knows what to look for and what distance to look for it at, then you're really, you're really a lot better off. And I know, um, are, are you from Colorado originally? Yeah. So I was, I was, I was born, uh, right there in the mountains in Colorado. Okay. Of Eagle. So I've only hunted Colorado once and it, it was, a it was an elk hunt a few years ago outside of, uh, Pagosa with, you know, half of the states of, you know, Michigan, Texas, and California all, all joining me there. But I was looking at at really long distances and I was hunting with a guy named Tim Butler, who is from, uh, is, is from the Northeast. And Tim had spent most of his life hunting really close range wooded stuff. And we we're sitting at the top end of a meadow glassing along. And I was looking a couple miles out across this drainage, looking into some parks and things like that. And, uh, Tim goes, there's an elk. And it's like, gosh, how did this guy spot an elk before me? I can't, I can't believe this. Um, and I'm looking and I'm looking really hard and I, all right, Tim, talk me onto it. And he goes 50 yards. It's like 50 yards. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and he was looking at the Aspens, like really tight Aspens right next to us. And that's what his brain was really used to. I would sure. have completely missed him, man. I, I was two miles off. So that, that was a really, uh, a really interesting telling, I guess, of like what your brain can get used to because it wasn't in his wheelhouse really, even though he had hunted in the West before, it really wasn't in his wheelhouse to be looking at stuff that was that far away. Whereas like, yeah. that's the norm for me is to look at something that is just really as far away as I can clearly see with my optics and then try and make a plan based around that. Right. You know, glassing's funny, uh, James, and not to like totally nerd out on the subject, but I, I actually think what happens, if it, particularly if you've just been hunting like a certain species for a while, I think that in, in guides and clients always, there's always this dynamic where a client will be like, how are you seeing them so quick? And it's, it's kind of hard to explain because I think what happens is your brain starts to catch patterns that that you can't really explain or that you even know what's doing. You know what I mean? Um, I, I actually think that that's the case. Like, yeah, you know, of course it get, you know, you, you realize that, okay, now I know what, uh, you know, what color I'm looking for. Like that's an obvious, you know, um, you know, outward thing that we're all going to pick up on. But I think there's other things, man, when you start seeing game, you know, over and over and over, over a few week period in the same type of vegetation, I think your brain starts to, it kind of knows like where a hot spot is and it'll kind of drag you into looking at that more. Right. And it could be the vegetation. It could be the shadows there. Something that makes it just like gamey. You know what I mean? Um, so I, I don't know that's a little woo woo, but I actually think that's a real thing, you know? Oh, I, I agree a hundred percent. Another thing is that something that amateurs do is they look for, and I'm going to use elk as an example. They'll look for elk. And they'll, they'll try to find something that is an elk out there. Uh, something that professionals do is in their eyes, everything is an elk until proven otherwise. So yeah. it, it it's almost the, the opposite approach. Malcolm Gladwell wrote about a study in one of his books that was talking about who can determine whether someone is lying or not. And most of us are really, really bad about detecting dishonesty. And okay. the the reason that we are bad about detecting dishonesty is the only way to do it is to assume that people are being dishonest. If my assumption is that you're lying to me, then when you do, it's easy for me to catch it. But that's yeah. a really difficult way to communicate and to live life. And there's, there's no trust that that's developed. So 
people are better off in society if they assume honesty, if they assume best intent, even though that means that they're going to miss the lie. Yeah, um, I got you. So for, for me, I'm going to look at a hillside and everything out there is a coyote. Like every bush, every everything is a coyote until I can determine that it's not. And I can do that pretty quickly because I know what a coyote or part of a coyote should look like. Same thing with elk, all the things that I'm used to. But if you yeah. put me in Puerto Rico and say, find all the iguanas, nothing yeah, yeah. nothing looks like an iguana to me. I'm looking for iguanas. I'm not looking for things that are not iguanas and, and just going through that process that much faster. Yeah, I got you. Yeah. That makes sense. The thing that you're talking about with like just knowing – you know, being able to high grade the terrain and vegetation really quickly and be like, okay, these are the places that, you know, there should be an animal. Now I'm going to be able to, you know, think about that really quickly and, and move through it and then come back to that to see if anything has changed. I think that that, that just comes with experience in the terrain. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the other thing is guide guides can cheat a little bit too, because they're always, they're always hunting the same stuff. Right. So like, I mean, it, it's funny you you uh, mentioned the the deal with your buddy glassing up the close elk. There were some spots, you know, last few years in particular that I guided, you know, these big, you know, I'd get up above an aspen bench that was just a thick, you know, kind of belly, you know, belly bench where you couldn't look into it anywhere. And I mean, I'm talking stuff like sub, you know, sub 300 yards, 250 yards. And I'd sit down with guys and I'd pick up game in there, but I'm talking like, you know, just a little tine or you'd see just like, you know, just a little tail dock, that sort of thing. And it was, you, you'd always get like a flabbergasted reaction, but it's like, like I've literally glassed this spot, like, you know, 400 times. Yeah. And, and usually somewhere in there this time of day, there's game. So like in my mind, it's a lot, you know, it's not a fair, not, not, it's not that glassing's a competition, but it, you know, if it were, it's not a fair, uh, a fair uh, competition, you know? Yeah, you, you know, you can treat a hillside and everything that's on it like your living room and the furniture that's in it. And it, it may seem like a, a hillside is something that's a lot more complex, and, and in some ways it is, but you can also memorize it so that yeah. anything that changes on there stands out to you so obviously it would be the same as you walking into your living room and the chair being in a different place. Like you would, you would notice oh, that yeah. immediately because you've memorized what it should be. So as soon as there's a change, it's, it's just glaringly obvious. Um, yeah, man. It, yeah. It's the way, the way you put it, James, I is, is a good way. Cause I've actually tried to explain that concept And the way I explain it is like my kids, they play these games and a lot of times they'll be on like, uh, They'll be on like diner menus or, you know, like kids menus. And it'll be like a picture, like a cartoon picture. And it'll be like, pick the five things that are different in the, in the other picture. And our brains are really good at that. And I, I do that when I'm glassing, like a, particularly a spot that I know well. Like, I mean, I can, you know, I can look at, like there's certain spots where I can look at a ridgeline and I can just, without even glass and like look across that set of aspens and be like there's a bull bedded right there i see it you know what i mean even before i pull up my binoculars and that's because i've seen that stretch from that exact angle a million times you know what i mean um but i like the way you explain it it, it totally makes sense so as you're coming into a new environment or if you're a, a new hunter um you know both being roughly the same thing What's your advice to people to try to get to that level? You know, they, they don't have the advantage of, of looking at this hillside 400 times over the last 10 years. So how are you instructing either client who's, who's sitting down with you or somebody who's listening to this show, that's going to go out on their own? Like, how can they get a little bit of a leg up? How can they, how can they expedite this process so that they can spot game more, more quickly? You know, James, so I think I think part of it for, for better or worse is that it does just take time. And I have a whole I have a whole theory about that, too. It doesn't just take, you know, time in the field. It also takes time where you really kind of analyze like what you're doing and you go on one hunt and then hopefully you can go on another hunt in a couple of weeks, that sort of thing, kind of iterate on the process. Um, so it just does take time and repetition and, and but being, you know, critically thinking about that repetition um, but beyond that, uh, you know, kind of 
what you're really asking for is like, what are some tips to get you like up their learning curve faster? And, and those, those do exist, exist for me, you know, somebody who's learning the glass, one of the biggest things is just controlling the movement of the binoculars. I would say that for me personally, when I became, you know, once I became hyper anal about, you know, controlling the movement of my, my binoculars, either with a tripod or, you know, just always framing, you know, leaning against something like if I'm going to glass out of a truck, even if I stop for just a minute, unless, unless if I'm glassing like, a you know, just looking at something 150 yards off the road, like, yeah, I'll leave my truck running. But if I'm looking beyond that, even if it's just for a quick look, like I turn the engine off of my truck. You know what I mean? Because the because the vibration makes it harder for you to see game. Right. And so just, you know, that's a real it, it's a real practical thing people can do. If you become super conscientious about controlling that movement, you will you will start to see way more game. And I think there's lots of reasons why. But one of them for sure is that you'll start picking up the very small movements that game makes. You know, what I mean, just little ear flickers, you know, a tail twitching, any of that stuff, you know, cow, you know, cow elk chewing or cut or whatever. You're going to you're going to pick that up. Whereas from any distance, if you have movement in your optic, uh, it's it's hard. And, and you may know you, you may have a little bit more, um, you know, some more depth to this, because I've actually talked to some people and they say another reason that that helps is that in the. In the optic, if you have the movement, your eyes are like constantly trying to autofocus. So it actually like, you know, wears your eyes out too. So you if you can control that movement, you have you have less kind of fatigue over time also. So if I if I could tell a person who's glassing one thing, I would say that. Like you have to get your optic under control. That would be the the biggest one. And then and then the other thing is what what you hit on, James, and that's don't look for, you know, don't, don't look for, you know, just the profile of a, a mule deer buck on the horizon or, you, you know, a whole, like a whole bull elk is going to be, you know, in the middle of a south, like a south facing slope during the, you know, during the middle of hunting season, one of these over the counter units. I mean, when I would see a mule deer or elk in that situation, it was so odd. It would like, it, I would be like shocked. You know what I mean? They just like, when they get hunted really hard, you're very rarely going to see the whole body of an animal. Like they, like during, during shooting light, right. They just, they, they're always on the edges. You know, they always have some covered nearby all that. So you've got to get used to seeing that. And you hit on something that's very important. And that's that if you see something like the best example that, that, that I would use is a lot of times I'll see curves that feel suspicious to me. Right. Like I see a curve, you know, between a couple trees or down low or whatever. And it may not look like an elk. It might not even have the color of an elk to me. You know, who knows? I'm, I'm actually colorblind, which, which really means I'm kind of just shade blind. So I'm not going to see the depth, the color of, it, of most people do anyways. But I'll still I'll just like I'll look at that curve. And I mean, I will like get the movement of my binocular to zero and I'll just watch that curve for a second. And just see if it moves a little bit, you know, see if I can see hair, like you can, like, if you really focus on something, even from a long distance with good optics, it might take a second, but there's a difference between, you know, bark and hair, just the texture, you'll, you'll notice it and you'll be like, boom, I, yeah, that's an elk actually. I, I, whereas you could have went over that 10 times and not been just meticulous about it and, and you'd never pick up that animal. So I was going to say those are my quick tips, but that wasn't very, that wasn't very quick, but <laughs> that wasn't very quick. However, <laughs> if people listen to that, like a hundred times in a row and memorize everything that you just said and go out and implement it, they'll go from a one-on-one level hunter to a master level hunter that day. Like if, if you can figure out how to glass and utilize all the techniques that you just talked about you're ahead of 99% of the competition. You just won out West. You beat everybody. If you can master glassing and wind, like the rest of it is so oh, basic, yeah. you know, it, it's almost not even, yeah, th those are incredible tips. You know, the way that, that I defeat movement is with uh, image stabilized binoculars. 
Yeah, and, and go for it, James, because I'll, I'll be honest with you, man. I, I want to hear about them because I'm, I'm super unfamiliar with, yeah. with even how they work. So I, you know, I think I may have talked with you about this before, but I, I'm trying to move all of the technology that, that I used to have available in the Marine Corps into the hunting space. So the things that I used to have there, I want again. And one of those things is image stabilized binoculars. So what that means is they're going to be a couple gyroscopes that are inside the optic that stabilize the prism. So uh, light comes in through the lenses, it hits a prism, goes through some more lenses, and then comes out into your eyes so that you can see a magnified version of what is out there. The human eye is, is the eye of both a predator and a prey species. So as, as our species evolved, we hunted things and we were hunted by things. For both of those, what was really critical was our ability to see movement. That's that's how we pick stuff up is is not not always on the color of something, not always on the shape of something, but by its movement. And some evidence indicating that color is relatively unimportant to us is by the amount of the light spectrum that we can see. So we can see from like violet to uh, to red. That's that's what we can see everything in between Uh, red, orange, green, yellow, indigo, blue, violet, I think is the way it goes. So most animals can see one side or the other of that. So some can see infrared a little bit, and then others can see ultraviolet. And it it shifts what they can see, and, and we're firmly in the middle. But we see movement extraordinarily well. And we can see both at close range and at distance. And we can see during the crepuscular hours of dawn and dusk, which you know, definitely is a weak point for a lot of species, whether they can see really well at night or during the day those shoulder periods are are difficult. So our eyes can see, you know, from really first light in the morning until last light in the evening, and we can see movement extremely well, and we can see basic colors that are in the middle. If your binoculars or your spotting scope are moving, then your eye has has lost its, its predominant ability to detect movement. And now you are relegated to only seeing color or shape. And you can't see shape very well because like you said, we're having trouble focusing. And then color isn't all that helpful because the animals that we're trying to see, you know, the color that they are is a color that helps them avoid detection, right? And the places that they're in is helping them avoid detection based on how shadows are falling on them and and things like that. And they're, they're limiting their movement. So being able to to have a stable view of your animal, whether that's using traditional optics on a tripod or, you know, trekking poles or lodgepole pine, or, you know, however you figured out how to stabilize them, incredibly important. The image stabilized binoculars, I can hold those things up with one hand, 16 power binos that weigh 18 ounces. I've got a trekking pole dangling from my wrist. It should be impossible for me to see anything, but because that prism stabilizes what I can see, not only can I see really well, but I can detect movement. So my okay. primary strength um, has come back to me through that through that technology. So uh, there's a lot more clear optics out there than I'm talking about that the Sig Zulu Six. That's this image stabilized bino. Um, no doubt in the world, like Swarovski, Zeiss, Leica, and even some of the traditional optics that Sig makes, like the Zulu Nine definitely clearer than the Zulu six. However, you will be able to outglass everybody if you have a stabilized platform to see through. And if you put a, a, like, like an eye chart up, you know, I don't care if somebody spent $9 million on their Swaros, somebody with stabilized binos is going to be able to read a smaller font than, than the other guy. So that movement that you're talking about hundred percent critical. And I am, I am on board with you. I, I think that, that that's very sage, sage advice to figure out how to stabilize yourself um, and spend time getting creative with that rather than waste time glassing from an unsupported position. Yeah, yeah. No, I hear you. But man, I have to, I'll have to get a pair of those and try them, man. Um, are, they, are they available? I mean, that, that, that sure. model, it's available. Okay, I got yeah. you. Yeah, yeah. I have to try it. It's interesting, James. I mean, I'm just naive to the technology. It's not, 
it's a it's a mechanical um stabilization it's not software right so it's it's powered um so like they get run by one double a battery and that'll take you through a whole hunting season so the the power bill is really low on them gyroscopes are are amazing and you know gyroscopic precession is really amazing too so that's what keeps a a bicycle moving so a single tire is a gyroscope as soon as you have two tires moving in the same direction you have gyroscopic precession and now a moving bike is incredibly easy to balance on um, which is remarkable right that would seem like an impossibility if you're trying to explain that to someone who'd never seen a bicycle before yeah you would think that that would be very difficult to control, not increasingly easy to control the faster it's going. Yeah. Yeah. So like you, you know, you you spin a top on a table, you can push your finger into the thing and it will lean back against you. So that's what's happening to that prism is as you're moving, it's sort of floating around in there and resisting that movement and providing a stable image. And, uh, yeah, it's it's pretty cool. I've one of the biggest surprises to me about it is that I could see really well at low light, and they're oh, fairly okay. small in their um, objectives. So the what is it focal diameter? I can't remember all the technical terms, but basically the the amount of light coming through was less than what you would get from say something with a fifty millimeter objective lens. But uh, I was able to see deeper into the dark with stabilized binoculars and otherwise and i think that just goes back to our eyes necessity to have a a stable image yeah yeah that that makes that makes sense man and i i've actually i don't know if it's age or or maybe maybe it's who knows experience age or whatever but i've actually become more sensitive with my chest binocular to the weight of it Mm. um i've i've always carried range finding binoculars when I was guiding in particular, very handy, obviously, I just have it right there. Um, but I have found recently, in the last like 18 months, I'll still use them because of the just utility of having that range finder there. But man, sometimes I do prefer to, to not have the range finder in there just because of the weight and I can hold them steadier. Yeah. Um, you know, even with the frame, you know, I don't have that fatigue. Um, so it does, it does matter. But, uh, but yeah, man, that that's one that uh, you know. I it's the thing that's crazy about it is every every you know uh, guide or hunter who's spent a whole lot of time in the field that I've hunted with, um, I, somewhere during their um, career as a hunter, they figure that out because all all the greats in my mind they frame up or they you know they use a tripod a lot or whatever when they're glasses. That's a good one for folks. Who are some hunters um, who influenced you as you were growing up and and developing within this? Yeah, so um, to be honest with you, um, I mean, I had you on on Jay's podcast. You know, Jay Jay's been a pretty big influence uh, on me in terms of particularly in the last like seven or eight ten years with with glassing. Um, fairly humble guy, James. Like his a lot of his content is really about bringing you know other people's knowledge to his listeners but there's a there's a ton i've learned just directly from him he's he's super super knowledgeable so he's he's one i think in terms of skill set you know there's him there's been there's been you know guides and outfitters in colorado that i i helped on hunts or guided for you know that nobody knows about james you know like uh, Joe Bauscher, I learned a lot from him. Um, you know, he he's probably over the last, you know, uh, 30, 40 years, one of the most successful sheep guides probably in in well, probably in North America. Um, but he doesn't have, you know, he doesn't have a profile on Instagram. He, you know, that doesn't matter to him. Yeah. I mean, those are those are the guys I want to hear about. So what what's a good Joe Bauscher story? Yeah. So uh the thing about him is when I went into an area uh, sheep hunt with Joe, he always knew how to be kind of proficient at where he was going to glass from, right? And what I, one of the things I learned from him is if I'm going to, if we're going to hike up, a, you know, a drainage for four or five hours, he's not going to, he, he's not going to glass every 400 yards, right? He already knows 
you know, the three or four spots that we're going to spend time glassing in that drainage, right? And, and one, it's just that his knowledge of the area over years of guiding in the same area, but also just this knowledge of, it always applies when you're hunting, but it applies even more so when you're guiding. There's always this management of, um, you know, how much, how much effort and energy there is in the hunt, right? If you stop with a, with a 60 pound backpack, you know, every 400 yards to glass, you know, it, it drags on you and you're not being efficient, right? You got to go to the, the, the right spots in glass and spend your time there. And then you also need to be, you know, looking in areas, um, and this applies to sheep to some extent, but, you know, on, on goats with him, particularly I'd go scouting. It was always, an, you know, not about finding goats, that were just there is about finding goats you could actually kill, right? Um, so it's always about efficiency. And, and that's one thing about him I learned, and I think it actually improved my guiding in particular. You know, you can't you can't just you you can't just go ad hoc at it, man. You gotta have like spots you're going to and and use your time hunting at those spots, if if that makes sense. How do you pick a spot to glass from? So um there's, there's kind of two ways that, that, uh, that I do at least one, just kind of like traded knowledge, right? Like all my glassing <laughs> spots, you know, all my, all my glassing spots in the flat tops, like, you know, amongst the guides, like we kind of just like traded them. Right. Um, and then we also kind of had spots that I guess in some ways, you know, everybody knew, Oh, that's a spot that Cliff likes to, to glass out of, or that's a spot that Evan likes to grab. So like we would kind of be, you know, there's a little kind of code or whatever around that. But outside of that, you know, you, you trade those spots and you, you know, over time and those spots get, get traded. I think a lot of hunters do that. Um, and that's from just, you know, spending the time to go up there and hike. Um, the other thing that I do if I'm going into a new area is I just use a topo map. You know what I mean, James? And I think that it's very easy for me to say, um, but it takes time you know, iterating, right. You know, and you can, you can do it on Onyx or whatever. It it doesn't really matter, but, you know, turn the layer on, you know, my recommendation to people is turn the topo layer on. And when you get into spots where you're like, like, oh man, I can really see a lot from here. Look at that topo map and, and look at what it looks like right on the topo map. And then you've got kind of that picture of it you know, zoom out in your map or scroll around a little bit and look at spots, you know, that have the same exposure, you know, a lot, sometimes depending on the area, like it's got to have the same vegetation too, because you can be, you can go into a slightly different exposure and the vegetation changes. And then all of a sudden it's very difficult to glass from there. You can't get as much of a view, but if you see an image on a topo map and you're there and you're like, this is good. Where's another spot like that. Right. I do. I do that. I do that a lot. Um, my other recommendation on glassing spots, particularly when you're just going out to find them, is you can't. Uh, I'm trying to I'm trying to say like a night have a nice way to say this, man. But you can't be like a like a weenie about it, man. Like you have to. You can't go halfway up to glassing spots. I know that sounds naive, but like or sounds obvious. But a lot of people do that, particularly in the dark. If in the new area, they're gonna go halfway up. You know, if you have a spot you know, on the top of a map, you know that that looks like a good spot, go all the way to that spot. And then, you know, if it starts to get light and you're in a spot and, and you're thinking like, man, we should be a little bit higher, like pick your shit up and go. Don't, don't waste the time you need to, you know, you got to exert that effort. So that's kind of my, my thoughts on finding those, those spots. Yeah. I like that. Um, I, I like that a lot. I break glassing also down into two categories. It's like one, one category is going to be a place where I can see the most spots that I think might hold an animal. And then the other is a place where I can glass and I can move on the animal from there. Cause like I talked about earlier, a lot of the places that I'm glassing are miles away. And those miles, I might not be able, even if it's two miles a day, I might not be able to make it there today because it's not just two miles. You don't, you don't just walk over there. Yeah. Um, but for like spring bear, which we have coming up, people are going to continue to hear me talk about spring bear because I want more people to do it. It's just such an awesome hunt and it, sure. it helps. 
But for Spring Bear, gosh, they are so on the move at that time that if you're glassing across canyon or across a river and it's not to a place that you can move on and then shoot, uh, you might be wasting your time. Because if you glass yeah. something up that's you know across a river canyon and you hike down there and hike up again, that bear's gone. He's somewhere else now. So your, your opportunity is lost. Now, you might have to make some sacrifices in how far you can see, but I'm going to pick places for spring bear season in particular that if I glass a bear, I can move on him and I can go in there and get a shot on him because I don't have time on my side. It's not like a it's not like a bull elk at the end of November where if I find him there, I can come back next week and I can find him there again. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's funny. It's the funny, the way you describe that James, because it, it's to me, it's very similar to the skill set I was kind of trying, attempting to describe with, with Joe, when you asked me that question, it's like hunt management, right? It's like, if it's, if it's the last morning of your hunt, don't go glass from somewhere where you're not going to kill anything. You know right. what I mean? Yeah, or, totally. You know, it, it, like another concrete example is if, if you're sheep hunting in Colorado, right? You drew a sheep tag and there's five ram tags in that unit and there's three bands of rams. Don't go get somewhere where you can see all three bands of rams because those other four guys are going to shoot them in front of you while, while you're 2,500 yards away looking at them. You know what I mean? So you, yeah. you, need, you need to shoot. You need to. You need to roll the dice and be in a spot where you can see them and make a move. Like, I, I think, I mean, you you nailed it there with your description in the context of glassing. Like that whole hunt management thing, that's you can get you can get better at that. And and I know it sounds really obvious probably to your listeners, but it amazes me, you know, how people they'll they'll kind of get themselves into a spot and then they'll be like, yeah, I wish. I mean, I don't know why I did that. I could have been over there. And it's like, well, you just did that because you didn't think about it before you did it. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Not that I not that I always make perfect decisions, but it, you know, if you think about it, a lot of times you can improve your odds, you know. Totally. Totally. And gosh, if you want to talk about time management and hunting, the best example of that out there is spearfishing, which you're getting into. I'm I'm taking off uh here in a couple hours to, to go to Mexico and I'm going to do a little spear fishing. Oh, cool. It's the thing that I love the most that I'm the worst at. And, yeah. you know, I, I don't do well when hunting season is only, you know, 60 seconds long. And, uh, and that's exactly what it is, man. I, yeah. I love it so much. Um, I was spear fishing in, in Hawaii two years ago, and then a tourist got smoked by a tiger shark, not very far away from where I was. And I, I just saw the helicopters up like day in and day out that searching, um, didn't know what was yeah, going yeah. on. And Hawaii is really good about not talking about when, um, tourists get eaten by sharks cause they need oh, tourists yeah, to keep from a, from a the, PR perspective. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So you don't hear about it very often. Yeah. Um, but I, I called a buddy of mine who was on the fire department and he's like, yeah, tiger sharks are, are a pain. Um, just don't dress like a sea turtle and you'll be fine. And I was out here in this green cryptic and, brother i looked exactly <laughs> like a sea turtle dude shape and everything um so with a string with a stringer of bleeding fish on your right on your yeah i was asking yeah. for it well yeah. just a couple weeks ago another tourist got eaten exactly where i was spearfishing like 50 yards offshore by a tiger shark there um so hopefully we're not going to run into a bunch of tigers in the in the caribbean where i'll be in in mexico but uh yeah cool. I, i'm st i'm still looking forward to it i i think spearfishing is just the best i mean I, and i'm glad to hear that you're getting into it too what kind of fish are you going after down there yeah man so so most of what like i said like i'm i'm an amateur man in, in where where i'm at down here you can do like little shore dives yeah um so just like snapper grouper the you know those those sort of things there's a lot of guys that do um you know the pelagic species i don't know but i just haven't got into that yet you know what i mean james i like I kind of want to concentrate like in terms of gear and all that. I just want to have like my, I got all my shore diving stuff so I can focus on that now. And for me, it's, um, I, you know, I kind of break up, you know, mountain hunting like this too. Like there's, there's two components of it, right? There's like the hunting part of it and understanding the species, the glassing stuff we talked about, all of that. And then there's like a comfort level with being in the environment. Right. Um, and I would say like 
in the world of like the ocean and spearfishing and stuff like that's my primary focus you know like being like just a better water guy um and it's been it's really i i think we may share this man the ocean is a challenge for me i i i have enough experience in it i shouldn't be telling you that i'm an amateur but i am you know what i mean and it's because like for me it's just been very hard for me to to get up the learning curve and be very comfortable in the environment part of it so that's like the part that i want to be you know you know the breath hold stuff and just comfort in the ocean all that like that's where i'm trying to like get that optimized you know yeah i'm i'm much the same i'm very much a, a tourist anytime I'm in the ocean. Like I'm I'm not from there. I don't know yeah. how everything works. I don't know all the species and how they interact. And I'm not saying that that I really know that anywhere, but I know a lot more of it in the mountains and canyons of of my home area that I hunt in. And then, you know, I learn that everywhere I go. And these little these little trips that I get to take, you know, for a week long here, a week long there every year or every other year to, to go mess around in the salt and go spearfishing is, is wonderful for me because it is such a frontier in, in my own imagination and, yeah. and, and experience. Like it's just this wild uncontrolled place where anything is possible. And, and I don't know what's going on and I'm learning something and experiencing something new all the time. I just, I love it. I can't get enough of it. And I want to get better. So on this trip, I'm actually going to get guided on a couple of days. I've never been guided spearfishing oh, nice. before. And I'm yeah. so stoked, man. I I, uh, I hope the dude speaks English because I'm going to have a kajillion questions and yeah, just yeah. really look forward to both increasing my my personal safety as well as my effectiveness in, in doing it. But those shore dives, you know, the reef fishing, that's my bread and butter. I love that. Um, yeah. it, it's exciting. It's, it's kind of non-threatening. And uh it's just a good time. And these fish are tremendous tea. I mean, if you're going out and, sure. and fishing for grouper and snapper, it doesn't get much better than that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, from a from an eating perspective for sure. You know, I think a lot of like the hardcore spear fishermen, they you kind of, you know, they're 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 easier fish to kill or whatever, but you know, whatever. Dude, I'm all about that. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. <laughs> I mean the there. one that I'll, tastes I'll get... really good is easy to get. Sweet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah no no complaints for sure no i hear you but um man james you you nailed it dude like calling it a frontier because that's the same reason i like it man and i think that's the same reason people like going west and going elk hunting or deer hunting or whatever you know and i think about it a lot man i want i want to hear your opinion about it um i think there's less and less activities in this world that fulfill that man because like it's something about like humankind, like in our, you know, our economic system or our social systems or whatever, like we want to control all the variables, you know what I mean? And we're, we're pretty good at it, you know, and a lot of avenues of life, you know, how, you know, how we get food, all this stuff, right. It's pretty controlled. And so there's actually not that many places where we can like go into an uncontrolled environment. Like there's just, you know, anything can happen. And, uh, for better or worse, dude, that's that's appealing to a lot of us. Uh, I, I personally think it's probably appealing to all of us. Just some of us, you know, haven't you know haven't quite like you know taken the leap to get exposed to it. But uh, that's that's you, you like hit the, that it it's a frontier. I'm I'm gonna steal that one from you, man, because I think that's a great way to to put it. Cool. Uh, what's coming up for you this year that you're excited about? You know, um, that's a good, that's a good new year's question, man. So we talked, we talked about the whole, the whole ocean thing, which for me, like the next couple of months, you know, James is going to be, is going to be on the, on the block. Um, and then in addition to just keeping turning out a bunch of these YouTube videos that, that I have kind of, kind of stacked up, which are so good, by the way, like I, I said that yeah, on thanks, your show, man. but Honestly, man, I, I use you as a reference and as a resource all the time. And I learn something from every single video that I've ever seen you do. You do such a good job. You're articulate. You don't overcomplicate things. And I think your biggest strength is is sort of like what we've been talking about. You, When you look at a hillside, we break it down into the places that we need to spend more time looking, right? These are, these are the zones we got to look at. 
And you're doing that with the type of information that you're putting out. You're not really messing around with the stuff that people don't need to know. You're you're putting out the stuff that people really do need to know, whether they're currently aware of that or not. And, and you're doing it in a succinct and powerful way that is very easy for me to understand. Um, and I feel like other people are going to have the same experience and you're just doing such a great job. And I, I want to encourage you to keep doing it. And I really want to encourage other people to get this information um, because it is so good. Yeah. Thanks, man. I, I appreciate it. And that's, and that's kind of like beyond the next uh, couple months, like right now I'm putting together kind of a hunt schedule and I'll probably, you know, my guiding was really limited this last year. It was like, I mean, it was my first season after selling my business so it was like fairly limited. I had kind of a bunch of other stuff on my plate that I wanted to, to wanted to do, but I think I'll probably get back to a little bit of guiding and I'm going to try to do continue with a lot of the kind of how to kind of informational YouTube that I think that's going to be like my bread and butter still. Um, but this next fall and, and I'm going to do some spring stuff too. I'm going to really make it a, you know, a, a season of gathering as much content as possible. You know, I, I guess this is a recommendation for, you know, any guides out there, hunters out there, anybody like try to document it as much as possible. I know it's really annoying. Like it's annoying to have a GoPro. It's annoying to, you know, get your iPhone out all the time. Um, and I'm not saying for social media and stuff, that's whatever somebody wants to do, but reflecting on the last you know, a decade of my life, James, like one of my regrets is I didn't get enough content. You know what I mean? Like just, just, you know, all the, you know, all the strings of pack horses and, you know, in the deep snow and the ice and all that. Like I have all, I have shaky iPhone videos and stuff, but like, I wish I had a GoPro for the last five years and would have taped all that stuff. So, so I'm going to try to try to get a bunch of that. And while doing that, you know, use it to augment just a lot of this how to stuff is going to help people and then do, you know, I don't, I don't think I'm ever going to um, do a bunch of really in-depth, like long form, you know, hunting, like hunting shows. I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that that's um, that's kind of me, I guess. Uh, but I, I think I'll probably do a lot more of this how to educational stuff like in the field. So that's that's my plan for this year, man. That's awesome. How can I support you on that? Yeah, I, 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 I'm not sure. I mean, I think this is probably the biggest way, man. I mean, you, you're, uh, you always speak so positive. You, you, you make me blush, man. Like when I'm interviewing you, you make me blush about uh, the channel, and you just did now. So uh, that's that's awesome, man. Okay, well, if you wanna, if you wanna come up to my neck of the woods, be happy to show you around. There's some cool country here, and yeah, that'd be you know, cool. You might, you might find that uh, that some of this is uh, is a new frontier for you. Yeah, of course. I'm sure it is, man. Yeah. Um, I might, I'm, I might, I'll hit you up and take you up uh, on that. You know, at, every, every five minutes, James is this thing about the binoculars, the image stabilizing binoculars keeps popping in the back of my, my goofy brain. So you got a bug in my mind too. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, if I, if I see you in Utah in February, I'll, I'll show you a pair. That <laughs> sounds good. All right, man. Um, well, thank you again for your time. And where can people find you besides all the links that we're going to put in the podcast description? Yeah, man. So my uh, my Instagram is Cliff G-R-Y, C-L-I-F-F-G-R-Y. And then uh, on YouTube, if you just go to the search bar and type in my name, Cliff Gray, uh, it'll pop up. Those are those are the two main ways. People can go to my website, uh, which is pursuitwithcliff.com. I've got a newsletter there. You can sign up, uh, sign up there and, and keep in touch that way. Awesome. Encourage folks to do that very much. Um, or not, you know, if, if you don't want to learn, that's on you. Uh, if you, <laughs> if you like improving yourself, this is a good way to do it. Works for me. And, uh, again, sir, please keep doing it because I'm learning a lot and, uh, and enjoying it. Thank you, man. I appreciate you having me on. Thanks, James. Thank you. About a decade ago, I launched my old aluminum drift boat onto a remote whitewater river and floated for a couple sunny spring days to meet some friends who were bear hunting downstream. While I made them dinner that evening, one of my buddies came over and showed me a SIG rangefinder. I'd heard of the company and I'd seen their gear while I was a Marine, 
but this was the first time I'd seen one of their products built for hunters. The range popped up instantly, and it continued to range everything I put the reticle on as I scanned across the canyon. I'd never seen anything like it on the civilian market, and frankly, not on the military one either. Since that day, SIG has come out with a long list of high-quality and innovative products for hunters, as well as continuing the same for military, law enforcement, and responsible citizens. They have some great training facilities located around the country, too. Check out all that SIG has to offer on their website, sigsour.com. And this episode of the podcast is brought to you by SIG. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share the show with a friend. You can also rate the podcast and leave a review. Your support allows me to keep doing what I love, which is meeting incredible folks and sharing their stories with you. For more content and photos, follow the show on Instagram at Six Ranch Podcast or me at Six Ranch Outfitters. This episode was produced by Emily Brannigan with original music written and performed by Justin Hay. Art for the Six Ranch Podcast was created by John Chatelain and digitized by Celia Christofferson. Tune in every Monday for a brand new episode of the Six Ranch Podcast. I'll catch you next week.